0: Good morning church. Hey, thanks for being here today and uh, celebrate our risen Savior together as we do every first day of the week Uh, Coming together as the family of God is pretty incredible It is a blessing indeed as we look into the Word of God gather around the table We sing together we lift his name on high because that's what our life is truly all about But also to encourage one another on a Sunday morning as we come together to remind ourselves Hey, we're not in this thing alone. We've got the Holy Spirit living within us, but we've also got one another on this journey. Thanks for being here this morning. I want to say a special welcome to our guests that are here today. Thanks for joining us. It's truly an honor that you're here. Uh, we're glad that you're here, and our hope, of course, is if you're looking for a church home, today you can say you found it. We'd love for you to be a part of our Cross Point family and join us as we uh, together have surrendered to God. We've said, God, use us in your story how you see fit. We want to be a part of what you're doing in the world. And so we ask you to join us in the telling of that story of hope all around. There are multiple ways to get involved in. Uh, ministry. You can take a look at the bulletin, as Kale's already mentioned. Uh, We talked a little bit about Trunk or Treat, and I don't know about you, but uh, as we raised our boys, you know, I I wanted to make sure that they understood about the American system, kind of how things work in America from a very young age. And so they would go out trick-or-treating, and I wanted to share what the IRS does. They would come home with that, and I would take half of the candy. (laughs) So hopefully, maybe you're training up your kids in the way they should go as well. It's a great opportunity to be here next Sunday night to share in that giving out of candy and just the the festival that'll be here just to be a part of our community. We expect maybe 500 kids here on our campus and so it's going to be a great opportunity to be together. This morning we're starting a brand new series out of the book of Haggai. Now for those that don't know where that is, if you start in Matthew, which is the first book of the New Testament, work backwards three books, you'll find the book of Haggai. So you can turn there, we'll be there in just a few moments in chapter one. As we read from the word of God, I'll be reading from the New Living Translation and it will be on the screen as well. If you're anything like me, there are moments in your life where you get to a point and you have a question or two about some things that may not have happened yet. You may think, man, I thought by this time in my life I would have had my college degree. I thought, man, by this time in my life I would have owned my house. I thought by this time in my life that I would have been over this sickness scare. I thought by this time in my life I would have got that dream job that I'd always hoped for. I thought by this time in my life, I would have met Mr. or Mrs. Wright in my life. I thought by this time in my life, my kids would have moved out of the house so I could enjoy the empty nest. (laughs) There are lots of things you could probably plug in to that particular statement. I thought by now, certain things would have happened in my life Well, that is the emotive state that we find the Israelites in in the text that we're going to take a look at this morning. They have a longing for something more. there's some hardship that's along the way, and so they haven't fully completed. They thought by a certain time things would be a little different. But before we get to our text, I need to give you some backstory to get us to where we are in the text. So we start out with King David when Israel truly became a known entity there where it's located. The countries that surrounded Israel acknowledged them as a country. Uh, They were sovereign to God alone, and King David ruled well. He had many kids, but the kid that came to power after he passed was King Solomon. Many of us know King Solomon as uh, the wisest man to ever live. He was the wealthiest man at the time. Uh, in uh, that neck of the woods. And so a lot of people came to Jerusalem as he built it up. They wanted to sit at his feet to gain that wisdom, to interact with him. Uh, And certainly by his fourth year, he built and was building the temple there in Jerusalem, Solomon's temple, which was absolutely fabulous. It was ornate. It, It was a masterpiece. And people came from all over to check out the temple of Yahweh, people that lived in Israel traveled to Jerusalem to worship God. It was essence of God there on earth. Because the temple was in front of them, they could see it, they knew God was in their presence. They worshiped him there by sacrifice and offering prayer. They gathered as the people of God around that place. But eventually Solomon passed on and his sons began to talk about how they were going to divide the kingdom up. And so we eventually had a northern kingdom with the Ten tribes, and then we had the southern kingdom, which had two tribes. Israel was in the north, Judah in the south, and within Judah was the town of Jerusalem, the capital, where the temple also was housed. Well, they began to move away from worshiping Yahweh, worshiping God. They worshiped not only God, but other false uh, gods along the way. They interacted with the culture that they had inherited Uh, They're in the promised land. They begin to interact in such a way that it caused God to get their attention. Those top northern ten tribes we know were paying tribute to the national power, the uh, world power at the time, the Assyrians. Now, the Assyrians were an incredible group of people. They were very tough. It was the first nation in human history to ever have a standing army, an army that they paid to do just that. They had decided and discovered exactly how to torture people well, how to conquer people, how to kill people. That was what they were all about. But Israel made a decision, those northern tribes, to say, we're not going to pay taxes to you anymore, and that kind of upset the Assyrians. Israel sided with Egypt as an ally, but the Assyrians, over a period of several years, came down into those ten tribes, laid siege, and killed people. They took pieces of that culture away with them into captivity. And we find out in 722 B.C., Sennacherib finally took the remaining remnant of Israel into captivity and the ten northern tribes were never heard from in history again. Well, Judah was... That southern group, those two tribes, who were still somewhat dedicated to Yahweh, they had kings that brought them into false worship, but they also worshipped God. It was kind of up and down through the years uh, until finally a new world power came to be, that was the Babylonian kingdom. They conquered the Assyrians, and Judah paid tribute or taxes to the Babylonian empire. And they made a decision, we're not doing this anymore. We're not going to pay you anything King of Babylon took his army and came over to Judah, laid siege to Jerusalem, conquered the city, broke down the walls, came in, killed thousands, destroyed homes, and absolutely decimated the temple that Solomon had built. They carted off everything that was worth anything. They put the people that were left in shackles and took them into Babylonian captivity for some 70 years. They left a few families behind to farm the land because it basically became a breadbasket for the Babylonian empire. That happened in 787 BC. The Israelites are now in a distant land. Things are not the same. I want you to imagine just for a moment here in our American culture, despite the... The way politics have been lately, despite maybe economic downturns on occasion, things may not be exactly how we would like them to be, but the United States is still one of the greatest countries in the world. God has blessed us in numerous ways, although we don't acknowledge him for that that blessing. Imagine for a moment that one of the, the world powers out there that want to harm America launch a nuclear attack on four of our major cities, knocking them out, killing thousands. They, they discredit and dismember our ability to communicate one with another. The army can't function properly. They invade our coast, and all of a sudden, America is conquered. We are under martial law. You can never do anything again like you've always dreamed of doing. Whatever your degree is in, you're not going to be in that workforce anymore. You're going to do exactly what they tell you to do. There's a curfew. You have to be in your house at 7 p.m. or you'll go to prison. You can't worship like you've always worshipped. They're going to tell you what that's going to look like. Imagine what life would be like for us, and you've got a little bit of the feeling of no doubt what the inhabitants of Jerusalem felt like as they were carted off and everything else that they had ever known was laid waste. But then a new world power came into being the Persians, and they conquered the Babylonians. Darius thought, you know, culture is pretty special. And so although they conquered the world, they allowed people to keep their religion, to worship how they saw fit, and to keep those cultural practices in place. And so Darius sends Haggai with about 50,000 Jews back to Jerusalem in 538, they can begin rebuilding the city, rebuilding the temple, rebuilding their homes. And so they begin this trick back. Now, some scholars say that Haggai was probably about mid-70s, late 70s, as he began to preach, which means when Jerusalem fell, he was a young boy. He, he would have remembered what the temple looked like in all of its glory. Now they're on their way back, and so almost immediately, the people there on the ground in Jerusalem, they begin to rebuild the temple because God is important. God is premier. He is priority. And so they lay the foundation, and they get it exactly how it should be. They even rebuild the altar because sacrifice to God is paramount. They want to get back on good terms with Yahweh. They want to be blessed like they were at one time. But the Samaritans, who live just north of Jerusalem, have kind of controlled the area for decades. They like being in charge, and they don't like the idea that the Israelites are back in town. The Israelites are rebuilding their homes and the city and the temple. And so Samaritans come down in force, and they strong-arm those folks who are working on the temple of God. And all of a sudden, the Israelites say, hmm, this kind of got hard. I I don't like how this is really turning out in our story. And so as they think about how difficult it has become, they just stop work on the temple. And most scholars can put together anywhere between 14 and 16 years, nothing happened on the Temple Mount. Nothing was built. But everyone that lived in the area began to look at themselves and build their own houses and make sure they were taken care of. You see, they had forgotten that they were God's people. They had forgotten they'd been called by God to do something specific, something special. And so God calls up two preachers by the name of Haggai and Zephaniah. They live in the same time period, and he wants both of these guys to remind the Israelites of their calling by God to make him number one in their life, to make him first, And so we begin our textual study in Haggai chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. On August 29th of the second year of King Darius' reign, the Lord gave a message through the prophet Haggai to Zerubbabel, son of Sheltel, governor of Judah, and to Yeshua, son of Jehozadak, the high priest. This is what the the Lord of Heaven's armies says. The people are saying... The time has not yet come to rebuild the house of the Lord. Now, one version says, these people. Understand that God, any time through history, has talked about his people, the Israelites. That's what he calls them, my people. But here, God says, these people. I don't know if you've ever had a tough day at work. Maybe you had a lot of meetings, you took a lot of notes, you got some things accomplished, but you're tired. You're at the end of the day, you walk into the house. Kids are in their rooms doing their homework. Your spouse is at the table with this concerned look on their face. And the first words out of their mouth is, Did you know that your son got detention today? Wait, my son? I thought this was our kid. Oh, when the good things happen, it's ours. But when not so good things happen, it's my son. God kind of has one of those moments. He says, These people that I used to call my people. They got their hearts in the wrong place. They're doing some things kind of out of turn here. And what we have to remember in our own life is that the closer we get to doing something that is near to the heart of God, the more likely it is that we are going to have some opposition in the process. We just finished a series called Flip the Script, where we talked about the lies that Satan told us, and there are certainly moments where Satan will throw up those barriers. He'll create a moment in your life where you question, you wonder, is now when I'm supposed to do this, God? I hear you, but I'm not sure if now is the time. But with God's help, the Holy Spirit living within us, we will choose to do the right thing rather than the easy wrong thing. The people got there, they began to work, but it got hard. It got uncomfortable. Something happened to kind of put a wall in the middle of what they were doing. You see, when you and I fully follow Jesus, when we make a decision to look at his example and see how he modeled loving people, sometimes that gets hard because dealing with people is is a tough thing. I mean, everyone's got a different personality. You've got different wants and likes and hobbies. Got different sports teams, but you love everybody anyway. See, Jesus loved everybody. Jesus didn't necessarily approve behavior, but he loved everybody. Didn't matter what side of the tracks you came from, didn't matter what your skin color was, didn't matter if you were considered a tax collector or a sinner or a Pharisee, he loved everyone. And we're called to that same type of model and lifestyle. I mean, it would be easy if somebody hurt you or hurt your feelings or said something negative about you. It would be easy for us to withhold love. It would be easy for us to not forgive and move forward in that relationship. But the story of Jesus, his model would tell us a couple of things. One is we need to grow up. That kind of behavior I would expect from someone maybe in middle school or younger. But we're supposed to be mature adult Christians. He would also say you need to forgive that person as much as Jesus has forgiven you. Maybe it's easy to spend money and and to say, listen, we're going to spend money we don't even have. We're going to use some credit cards. We're going to fill the house up, the garage up, and the storage unit. We need to have all of this stuff so I can feel better about myself. But if you're really thinking we want to be debt-free, why is that? Not so just I can be debt-free, but it's so that I can become more involved in the story of God in the world. I want to have the capability, without my hands being tied, to support a missionary. To support or adopt a couple of kids out of Compassion International. I want to be able to go to Kenya next year. I want to go to Honduras next year. I want to help folks who I live and work with when they're having a difficult time. I want the ability to be generous. In my life. So the first question I want to pose to you this morning is one that's on your sermon notes on the back of the handout there. There's two bullet points there, and I want you sometime today to make a conscious effort to fill in those two bullet points. Here's the question. Is there some unfinished assignment in your life? Is there something that God's called you to do? Maybe it was yesterday. Maybe it was last week. Maybe it was 14 years ago. And he's called you to reach out and be different in your life. Maybe he's placed the burden of a family member in your own life that you know doesn't doesn't accept Jesus Christ, doesn't know the story of God, and you say, well, I've talked to them a couple of times, but they're just not receptive, and you stopped. But God's placed that on your heart, and he says, move forward in telling them the hope that they can have in me. Maybe it's just asking that person out that you've not asked yet, and they're Mr. or Mrs. right for you but yet you haven't moved forward in asking that person out maybe it's mending the relationship you have with your father reconciling that relationship maybe you said at one time I need to forgive and move forward in this relationship but for whatever reason that just hasn't happened for you yet maybe last year December you made a decision I'm going to start giving at church, God has blessed me so very much. Uh, January, I'm going to begin tithing. For whatever reason, you still haven't made a decision to follow through on that burden that God's placed on your heart. Maybe for you, it was a moment in time when you thought, I need to get involved in ministry. I want to start a new ministry. But no one else heard your voice, and so you just dropped it. You just quit. You just walked away. He's still got that burden that he's laid on your heart, and he wants you to get involved in that ministry, to start that new ministry. And he's asking, what are you waiting for? Maybe last year you walked into your closet and you saw it was full of clothes, most of which you don't wear anymore. There are people in our own community who have desperate need of clothing. And you made a decision last year, I'm gonna give half of this away. I'm not even going to get anything for it. I'm just going to give it away. And yet today when you go home and hang up your sports coat, there it still is in your closet. What is it that you've been called to do that you are waiting for? Well, Our text goes on. It picks up in verse 3 of Haggai. It says, Then the Lord sent this message through the prophet Haggai. Why are you living in luxurious houses while my house lies in in ruins, this is what the Lord of heaven's armies says. Look at what's happening to you. Hey, guys, trying to get everyone's attention. One version says, give careful thought to how you are living your life out in my name. And he says in our version here, you live in luxurious houses yet don't even think about mine. Mine. Many of you know I love to watch HGTV on Saturday morning, learning how to build stuff, and I don't know if you know, but Vanilla Ice actually has a show where he's building something. (laughs) Amazing. But he puts homes together in the Miami, Florida area, and every single house that he works on is absolutely a million-dollar home or better. It is gorgeous. And I look at some of that stuff, and I think, man, there's no way I would ever want that mortgage payment. I wouldn't want to have to pay him for the work he's doing to this house to get it where it needs to be. But I want us to understand, even in the context of our text here this morning, God doesn't care what type of house you live in. God doesn't care what type of car you drive. He doesn't care what the label says on the clothing that you wear. What he does care about is when those things come before him. God wants him to be the priority in our life. Are you putting your own comfort before his calling to you? Are you consumed with yourself or are you consumed with God and following that burden that he's placed upon you? In 1991, right after we got married, Robin and I moved to Minnesota and it snowed like crazy in Minnesota Halloween night, it snowed 29 inches. We never saw the ground again. And we were a desperate southern couple to get back down south. We weren't created for that business. (laughs) But I moved up there and I went to work in this little bitty Walmart store. It actually closed at 8 o'clock every night. That's how small it was. And when I arrived, a new assistant manager also came uh, alongside me in the store. Her name was Sandy. Sandy, I don't know if she was practicing or not, but her background was Catholic, and I was just coming back to the Lord, just coming back to church, and I was so proud of the, the advances I had made for his cause and his glory, and I began to chastise Sandy a little bit about her belief system, kind of poke fun at her a little bit along the way. And one day, Sandy came into our office, and she put her keys on the desk with tears rolling down her eyes, and she quit. Because of my selfishness. I don't know where Sandy went after that, but I'm sorry. You see, I was more concerned with O Tim than I was really being Jesus to those around me. And that's the call we get from Haggai's text here. Where is God in priority of your life? And God reminds us in verse six, a striking verse that we can resonate with, I would guess even 2,500 years after this letter was written. Verse 6, he says, You have planted much, but harvest little. You eat, but are not satisfied. You drink, but are still thirsty. You put on clothes, but cannot keep warm. Your wages disappear as though you were putting them in pockets filled with holes. I mean, think about your own life. You work in 80 hours a week and still feel empty at the end of it. You're pouring yourself maybe into your career only to dream of grass greener on the other side. Do you have more right now than you've ever owned in your life but it still just isn't quite enough? You and I, we go out to ball games, we go out to eat, we go out to the movies but we still long for something more, don't we? God says, Church, give careful thoughts to your ways. Where am I in the scope of your life? How am I prioritized? Are you worried about your house metaphorically or are you worried about my house metaphorically? The last two verses we'll look at this morning, verse seven and eight. This is what the Lord of heaven's armies says. Look at what's happening to you. Now go up to the hills and bring down timber and rebuild my house. Then I will take pleasure in it and be honored, says the Lord. God says, in case you missed it, I want you to grab pen and papyrus or stone or whatever it is you're writing on today. Listen closely. It's real simple. He says three things. I want you to, to go up to the mountain. I want you to gather timber and bring timber down, and I want you to build my house. It's just that easy. He, he says, listen up, church. Listen up, my people. I want you to go to go up to the mountain. I want you to bring down timber, and I want you to, to build my house. He says, I know some of that. That's pretty quick for some of you guys, so I'm going to say it one more time. He says, I want you to go up to the mountain, Jog, run, whatever you need to do. Take your ax with you. I want you to cut down some timber. I want you to bring that timber down. And I want, to, I want you to make me the number one priority in your life. That's what God's calling us today. 2,500 years later, the message is still relevant for each and every one of us in our life. But if you're anything like me, guess what? You want steps four through 64 before you move an inch, right? Right? I want to know some details. I mean, who's going to be there? Who is bringing the potato salad? You know good and well I don't lend out my tools. The list goes on. Is it redwood or is it oak? I want definite details about exactly what you're looking for from me, God. Tell me what priority looks like to you. And then I'll start moving. Then I'll move forward in the process. I need details, but God says my word is a lamp unto your feet and it's a light unto your path. Listen to me. I don't know how many of you have been involved in scouts before, but I've been on a few scout outings with my two boys and there have been moments where we didn't use flashlights, but we used lanterns. And when you're walking down the trail with a lantern, guess what? It only illuminates enough for you to take the next step, basically. You've got to take steps one, two, and three, God says, and I'll show you four, five, and six but you've got to have faith in me. Do you trust me? Do you believe me? you think I've got your back in the moment? Do you believe I'm going to bless you beyond measure if you just take take steps one, two, and three? You want to get in shape. You're ready to, to make the body what God designed it to be, and so three things you need to do. You need to start eating right. You need to get good sleep every night and you need to start a workout regiment. And maybe in your life you're saying, well, I'd like to get debt free. I want to get out of debt. Talk to somebody that's done it before. Get some pointers along the way. Probably going to need to create a budget for your house. And by the way, you need going to cut spending and cut up those credit cards. Three things to do. I want my marriage to be good again. I don't feel like it's in a good spot right now. God says, then you're going to need to humble, humble yourself. Because guess what? You're not the only one in this marriage. You're going to need to apologize for some things maybe you've said or done along the way. And third, you're going to need to start dating again. You remember those first three or four weeks that you came together? Swapping notes, Coke dates, telephone calls. Actually, guys putting on deodorant. I mean, that kind of stuff. <laughs> you remember... God says, it's pretty simple. I want you to do three things for me. I want you to to go up to the mountain. I want you to bring down some timber. And I want you to make me first priority. When you make a decision to do that, everything else is going to fall into place. God calls us to walk by the Spirit. But if you're like me, then we want some details. And I'm not moving until I get some real intricate details. I mean, I think that would be good stewardship, right? And when all else fails, get spiritual, right? I'm not moving until I see everything. That's what God would want me to do. We look at the story of Haggai, and it relates to us so very well. The way that we get started is to quit talking and start doing. That's what we begin doing in our life. The culture that we live in church is actually tired of hearing about Jesus. They want to see Jesus. And you and I have got to stop the talking and start the doing. We've got to make a decision in our own life that we are going to go up on the mountain. We're going to be inspired of God. We're going to bring those resources down that he has for us. And we're going to make him number one priority in our life. Man, the right thing to do in our homes is to become the spiritual leaders that God designed us to be. It's too many of us holding back. I mean, it's hard to fight with one another when you're busy praying with one another, right? It's hard to be self-centered when you're others-centered in ministry, in the community, at your work, in your home. I mean, at the end of the day, you and I are responsible for obedience to God. That's it. We're not responsible for outcome. But for whatever reason, we tend to hold the strings. And we say, if you do this, then I'll do this. No, according to Jesus, we're just called to love. We're not worried about who's doing what, when, where, and what I'm going to withhold if you don't do X. No, we're just called to love. That's what God calls us to do through his son, Jesus Christ. And so this morning is a call for us as we look at the story of Haggai and all of those thousands that came back to the temple mount. God tells each and every one of us today, what's holding you back? I'm going to give you your, your starting point. Go, go to the mountain, bring down timber, and make me number one in your life. And when you do that, I will give you everything else. But you've got to take the first three steps first. That's our call this morning from Haggai. Haggai. We'll continue digging in there for the next two or three weeks. I hope you'll join us over the process. I'm going to invite Brad and the praise team back to the stage at this time. And our shepherds, all of them, will be along the wall of this room with their wives. And as we sing this song, maybe there's something in your life that you need to let go of, something that's holding you back from truly taking that first step to get to the mountain. And I want to encourage you to go see one of our shepherds. Let them pray over you, lay hands on you, talk to you about what's happening in your life. Get some encouragement in the moment because today's a new day. The sun is shining. God's waiting on the mountain for you. Will you take that first step? Let's stand and sing together.